Thank you, Dr. Rosa. Part one, Bunsen Evers and the Mayor. Hello there, my name is Bunsen Evers. People call me Bunny though, or they used to, back in the time before I disappeared. It's been years and years though, and I'm getting old. So I reckon it's time for me to tell my story and take back the name that fits. I'm doing it because I want the name I'm known for to match the name that'll go on my tombstone. And I'm doing it because I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to who saved me so that the whole world can hear because it changed the way I see the world. You know, like a pair of glasses you don't even need to wear that teaches you to see the truth. Then, when you see the truth, you start caring about the right beings and being in the right places, the way that beings and places meant us to be in the first place. You might say I sound like a crazy old fisherman, and you'd be right. But crazy doesn't lie. Not in this world. Not when you're a fugitive of Isington. Not when you rob the mayor and escape to a place that all your life you were told was populated exclusively by monsters. Not when the being that saved you was the one you almost sent to the cemetery. And all that for money to buy a key to your own cage. What I'm about to tell you is the truth. And if you don't believe me on account of what the television and the mayor told you about money, that's your choice. I just ask you to listen with an open mind and ask yourself, what kind of person tells you she's protecting you from monsters that you've never ever seen? The mayor of Isington, that's who. Her name was Wash Katan, but everyone called her mayor. I suppose that's all she ever wanted to be. She used to be a friend of mine when we were school children, and I can't say she was all bad. No one is, but something must have turned somewhere along the way. It went from wanting good grades and awards, getting them, and that never being enough. She was smart and tough, my theory is, she lost her sense of humor. That's why we were friends. I made her laugh. Then, one day, we were separated. I don't think she laughed that much after that. She started out being mayor when Isington was a bit of a mess, you might say. Lots of people didn't have jobs, and the streets were dirty. Some said they were dangerous. But I would amend that by saying they were dangerous if you were a dimwit. I'm not the sharpest fellow you'll ever meet, but I didn't have a problem. I had the fastest fishing boat in Isington Fjord. I called her Bunny. That's how I got my nickname. You get it. Anyway, boat fuel was cheap. I lived on the boat. I didn't have to pay any rent. I had a phone, a radio, a wood stove, and a little closet full of boots and warm clothes. The fish market paid a fair price and always bought what I caught. There were plenty of beings who appreciated a fresh and healthy meal, and you could afford it then. The streets might have been messy, but the price to have a roof over your head was cheap. People spent time with their families. Kids played outside. You know the good old days that old men talk about? Sometimes they happened. They say life is better in Isington now because unemployment is down. Well, that's because you need five jobs now just to be able to pay for breakfast. Whereas when I was young, you only needed one. Mayor, though, 
I don't know if she'd see it that way. She got it in her head that the city needed cleaning up and that the animals were problem number one. By animals, I mean, you know, the kind with a coat of fur and a fancy set of teeth. I'm talking about the ones that speak a language that most human beings can't understand and prefer not to pay in cash. Anyway, the mayor paid lawyers to talk on TV saying animals didn't have a right to live near people. She said, Isington is where we live. Do you want to go back to living like the people across the fjord? The fjord was a deep piece of ocean water that separated us from a forgotten land you could see if you had a big pair of binoculars. She said, They're all monsters there. Dirty, vicious monsters. You don't want those monsters coming here, and we can't go back over there, so I'll protect you. I'll make laws that keep you safe and clean. Then she hired a police force whose job it was to make the lives of the animals who lived in Isington miserable. She made rules so that everything had to look like the inside of a shopping mall. Shiny floors, bright lights, nothing out of place, and everything the same. And she figured out a way to make the price of a roof over your head twice as high as the North Star. Let me tell you something about Isington. It's cold. All year round, cold. You need a roof. You need a roof. I mean, it's pretty. There's the moon and stars at night, bright sun during the day on snowy streets, pine trees on the boulevards, icicles on the crafty ornaments the carpenters built to frame the windows and rooftops. You could go to a park and view the boats in the fjord with the lanterns hanging from the pier and the cold sea stretching out to where the mayor's monsters supposedly lived. There's lots of pretty sights to see in Isington if you dress warm and go out for a walk. But you're going to need a roof. You need a roof and firewood and a good jacket. You know what I always say though? There's no bad weather, just bad decisions. Trouble with the mayor she made it very, very hard to make a good decision, especially if you were an animal. You had to work around the clock, and the police would chase you if the slightest part of your life fell out of place. It started out with the animals, like I said, the kind with fancy teeth and a coat of fur. But you know what? We're all animals. I'm going to say that again. We all are animals. It's true. We're all animals. And pretty soon, we found that out. The artists, the cooks, the cleaners, the carpenters, the students, the painters, the window washers, the factory workers, the snow shovelers, the dock workers, and yes, you guessed it, us fishermen found out too. I had a fast boat and was very good at my job, so the trouble hit me late, but it hit me. I could no longer catch enough fish to be able to afford fuel for my boat. I was heavily in debt, and I was getting desperate. I hadn't heard from the mayor, or Wash Katan as she used to be known, since we were back in school. We dressed up as always, in warm clothes, and had a picnic by the fjord the day we graduated. I went off to sea, and she went off to law school, and that was that. I'm not sure why she called to tip me off on the reward. If I had to bet, I'd say she felt bad about how her policies might have been hurting me. Like I said earlier on, no one is all bad. Likewise, no one is all good either. The phone rang on an icy morning. 
I heard a familiar voice. Hello, Bunsen. It's the mayor of Isington. Washka? I asked, very surprised to hear her voice. Washka was the nickname I gave her soon after we met. I tried calling her Washi at first, and she hit me over the head with a big book. So I came up with Washka, and she liked that better. Bunsen, I'm the mayor of Isington now. You can call me Mayor. I cleared my throat and held the phone up in the air to recapture the fact that I was shouting like my ears didn't work. <clears throat> yeah, well, you can call me Rattletrap or Pickle Jar or Strawberry Jelly or Queen of the Junkyard Pirates. You can call me whatever you want, but it's not going to change who I am or where we're both going. Bunsen, she said, still all cool and collected. I don't have time for your antics. My men tell me you're struggling for money. I have a reputable way for you to catch up on your expenses. Your men? I asked. You mean those guys in uniforms that chase around poor people and put them in cages? They're not poor people, she said. They're animals. They're dirty. They're unintelligent. They contribute nothing. I don't know, Mayor. I'm pretty sure I've seen some actual talking people get chased around and caged up when the rent was late. But let's not waste time on semi-antics. I need money, and you need time, and those two things are both ghosts that everyone believes in, but no one can explain. So I suppose we better hurry up and get to the point. Yes, Bunsen, she replied. We certainly all need money. There's been a raccoon who's been robbing the trash cans of bakeries all over town and leaving a filthy mess on the sidewalks. People are angry. They love their clean streets. We've got footage of the perpetrator on a security camera. He starts at the Velvet Bakery on Ice Avenue at the corner of First Street near the cemetery. Then he winds his way east, tipping trash cans all the way, until he reaches that discotheque near City Hall that serves pastries and coffee in the morning. There's an old bootlegger's tunnel that leads from a trap door underneath the kitchen of the discotheque back to the cemetery. He takes the tunnel back to complete his route each morning. All you need to do is set up somewhere along the way and catch him. I'll give you a map. We'll set up a televised ceremony at City Hall to present you with a reward in exchange for the raccoon. The people will be happy that the problem is solved. You'll be a hero, and you'll get $7,000. $7,000? I yelled. I could buy a giant new boat for that. You're paying me $7,000 to catch a raccoon? It's symbolic, Bunsen. People need to know that the mayor prioritizes their interests, she said. Symbolic like those monsters across the fjord then, huh? I asked sarcastically. Bunsen, don't press your luck, she said. I'm going on television to announce the reward this evening. Come immediately to City Hall and get your map. With your skills, I'm sure you'll have the problem resolved by tomorrow morning. I was going to ask her what would happen to the raccoon, but she'd already hung up. What can I tell you? I went to City Hall. I watched the security footage. One of the mayor's police gave me a map. I caught the raccoon. I don't feel good about it now, and I didn't at the time, but I needed the money. That's not the end of the story, though. I'll get going on that right now. You'll like it. This part coming up is when it gets interesting. You're going to get to try on those glasses I was talking about.
Part two, Red Velvet. Red Velvet was a four-month-old raccoon. That's like being a very small child in human age years. His mother's name was Rosa. Everyone called her Dr. Rosa. Was she an actual doctor? Like with a white coat and a stethoscope? No, not really, but she did take care of everyone. She was very hardworking and extremely intelligent, even for a raccoon, which, let me tell you, are a very clever bunch to begin with. You know what else? When I say everyone called her Dr. Rosa, I'm not just talking about raccoons or even other animals like pigeons, dogs, sewer rats, hawks, foxes, and the like. I'm talking about human beings, too. Everyone in Isington knew her. The mayor might have said she was the exception that proved the rule, but the mayor, as usual, wasn't seeing it clearly. It started out when the baker's daughter got sick. She wasn't an imaginative kid who liked making her own costumes. She got so sick she couldn't speak or get out of bed for weeks. Her dad was scared she'd never sew a costume again. Dr. Rosa lived in a cemetery near the bakery where the baker's daughter would sometimes visit her. When Dr. Rosa learned her friend was gravely ill, she left a paper bag with herbs inside on the doorstep of the bakery. On the outside of the bag was a drawing that showed how to make tea. The baker was desperate. He made the tea, and his daughter miraculously got better. Once healed, her abilities blossomed, and she got so good at making costumes that she opened up her own shop. The baker was grateful and extremely proud. He beamed about Dr. Rosa to all his customers. Word got around, and pretty soon, anytime anyone had a sick family member, they'd send a message to the cemetery, and Dr. Rosa would turn up, and nine times out of ten, have a medical solution. It's still a mystery how she had so much knowledge and wisdom. I say it's math. Some of us are just bound to be born with abilities beyond what seems possible. Whether or not you believe me on that front, her motivation was easier to figure out. You don't need to be a scientist or a detective to see it. Her husband died, leaving her alone to raise their son Red. She felt sad and guilty that she wasn't able to heal her husband, and she was desperate to figure out a better life for her son. So she took that powerful mind and put it to work. Trouble was, she put it to work so hard that she neglected her son. Her friends would say to her, Dr. Rosa, you need to stop working so hard. What's the point? You need to take care of yourself. You need to take care of Red. I am, she would always reply, and they would tell her she was missing the point. Dr. Rosa had a theory that she was building up goodwill. Animals weren't able to possess or spend money, so they had no power. They lived in hiding and on the run. Rosa thought that if she couldn't have money, she'd find someone who did who could spend it on her behalf, and they'd be willing to do so because she'd earned it. That seemed like a pretty big leap of faith for a woman of science, but that was her strategy. As I indicated, though, The strategy had her running all over town, healing people and animals, while her four-month-old son was forced to fend for himself. She had an arrangement with the baker to leave day-old cakes and pastries in the trash can outside his shop. 
He did so, but there were a lot of hungry people and animals in Isington at that point, so the food wasn't always there when it was supposed to be. Red Velvet was smart like his mother, and even though he was only four months old, he soon figured out a route around town where he was able to find enough food to keep nourished until whenever his mother came home, hopefully with some vegetables and fish to supplement all the sugar he was eating. Sometimes, during the worst of times, Red was alone for days and days, and all he had to eat was cakes and pastries. This made him jittery and eventually careless. He'd leave trash behind, and people began to complain. When some of those people turned out to have a lot of money and called City Hall, the mayor had a problem on her hands. Her power was based on maintaining order, and this raccoon was behaving disorderly. She tried at first to have the police catch him, but he was too quick and too clever. Whenever they got close, he would go around a corner and disappear. The mayor then started looking at security footage. She had cameras everywhere and figured out Red's route. That's when she gave me the phone call I was talking about earlier. I wound up setting a cage with a cake inside it just outside the door to the discotheque kitchen. When Red went inside the cage to eat the cake, I had a fishing line that ran from the door to the cage to a fishing rod I was holding while hiding behind a parked car. I yanked the fishing rod, which triggered the door to snap shut, and that was that. I carried the cage with red velvet inside it under my left arm. I carried my fishing rod in my right hand. I walked to City Hall. I must have looked pretty strange. A lot of people glared at me. The mayor and a team of police met me at the door of City Hall when I arrived, and escorted me to an office filled with television cameras. There were a series of messages that interrupted the scheduled programming announcing that the raccoon had been caught, and that the hero who'd caught him would be presented with a cash reward of $7,000 just before the 7 o'clock news. Word got around town quickly, and though there was a line of people around the block waiting to get inside, the owner of Isington's most well-reputed costume shop closed her doors and shuttered her storefront window. Inside the costume shop, the owner spoke in low tones to the doctor who'd once saved her life, who happened to be a raccoon. Rosa, the seamstress said, they've caught your son. You need to stop living this way. The raccoon spoke back in a language that most people could not understand. The seamstress understood. Listen, Rosa, you've done enough. You've helped us all. Let us help you now. I will show you the way. Part 3. The Monsters Across the Fjord By the time the televised ceremony was set to air, there was a giant throng of protesting human beings gathered outside of Isington City Hall. Remarkably, they were all dressed in costumes so expertly sewn that it was hard to tell that they were human beings at all. They looked more like the kind of being with a coat of fur and fancy teeth. They were little and they were big. They were foxes, bears, wolves, 
wolverines, badgers, sewer rats, dogs, cats, owls, and every other kind of creature you could imagine, all holding signs that said, set the monsters free. This was an embarrassing mockery of the mayor's claim of many years that she was protecting the people from the animals that lived in Isington and from those that lived in the untamed land across the fjord. I looked out the window and saw what was going on and couldn't restrain a little laughter. The mayor was not amused. She was furious. Do you think this is funny, Bunsen? she asked. After I went out of my way to save your life? Well, you were never a strong student, but you're going to learn your lesson now. Save my life, I said. You paid me to catch a raccoon, and I did it. I don't know what you're so mad about. Just film your fake commercial, give me the money, and you'll never have to hear me laugh again. Just then, the police in the room began to snicker. One of them looked at me and pointed his wooden club. You're in debt, Bunny. The reward just gets you back to square one. Everyone knows you think you're clever, and I bet it's you that's behind this protest. You're walking out of here with nothing. This, as you might imagine, didn't sit well with me. Is that true, Mayor? Did you lie to me? I didn't lie she said. I told you I'd give you a reputable way to make some money, and you disrespected my office. You're lucky I'm not putting you in jail. I have nothing to do with this protest, I shouted. You think I figured out a way to get thousands of people to dress up to look like a jailbreak from the zoo just to play a joke on you? You know that's ridiculous. Be that as it may, she said coldly. I was willing to invest the money on the basis of you doing an errand that bought me goodwill. Clearly, you failed in that. And so, you have not earned your money. Get out of my office. You're a fraud, Washi. You could have been a good person. You could have helped people with how smart you are. But you settled for charging money for the keys to cages to keep out monsters you invented. It's not even an original play. I suppose all tyrants are plagiarists, though. You can keep your money. I said that and was about to storm out of her office when she pointed at the snooty policeman who'd piped up a moment earlier and said, Go to the fjord and sink Bunsen's boat, and if he speaks another word before leaving this office, arrest him. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't speak another word out loud, but what I did spoke volumes. I don't even know what made me do it. Pride? Blind rage? Or maybe that poetic, not-quite-sensical sense of humor that's always kept me afloat. I snatched the raccoon out of the cage and took off running. The police followed, but when I got outside, the protesters in animal costumes surrounded me and began dancing and shaking their way toward the discotheque. The police shook their clubs and shouted, but there was nothing they could do. We made it to the discotheque, and a cook in the kitchen opened up a trapdoor that led to a tunnel. I put Red Velvet down and followed him as he skittered through the dark passage and eventually emerged in a cemetery. While all that chaos was breaking loose, 
the mayor improvised. She went on television and announced that the raccoon had escaped with the help of monsters who'd crossed the fjord and invaded the city. She had the $7,000 placed in the cage from which Red Velvet had escaped and declared that whomever caught the raccoon would receive double that amount and free rent for a year. She spoke in a somber tone and the cameras captured her with Isington's flag hanging from a brass pole in the background. Then there was a knock at the door. There was one policeman left in the office. He looked at the mayor quizzically. She nodded and he opened the door. When the door opened, a young woman walked in wearing a rather convincing police uniform. She was clearly too young to hold that job, but you wouldn't have noticed it if you didn't look carefully. Besides her youth not matching her uniform, she was holding a beautiful handmade suitcase. It seemed to have been expertly sewn together out of pieces of material torn from old sofas. It looked like something you'd see at a museum. Hello there, young lady. Nice costume, the mayor said, rubbing her eyes wearily. I don't know how you got in here, but I'm afraid you've caught me at a bad time. No, no, I've come from the reward. I've caught the raccoon, it's in this suitcase, the young woman replied. That's rich, said the mayor. The raccoon that was just stolen away by a large imposing fisherman has been stolen back just minutes later by an imposter child police officer? Am I dreaming? Why is everyone around me behaving so foolishly? We're not. We're behaving more wisely than we ever have before, the young woman replied. The policeman, the real one, gripped his club and snarled. The mayor signaled for him to calm down and stood up from behind her desk. The young woman unzipped the suitcase and out came a raccoon holding what appeared to be a glass kettle filled with tea. This is Dr. Rosa, the young woman said. She's brought you medicine that will solve all today's catastrophes. Drink this tea and you will be free. The mayor rolled her eyes. I'm not drinking any tea, she said and pointed at the policeman. Are you sure? The young woman asked. I'm sure, said the mayor dryly. The policeman looks confused. The mayor snapped her fingers. The policeman moved forward to seize the girl. Dr. Rosa held the glass tea kettle above her little raccoon head like a ballet dancer when all the violinists start to earn their money. Then, before the policeman's boot heels made three drum beats across the antique floorboards, Dr. Rosa dropped the kettle. Glass shattered and smoke filled up the room. When the smoke had cleared, the policeman and the mayor lay sleeping on the floor. The young woman, Dr. Rosa, and the $7,000 in the cage, all were gone. Part four, my tombstone. I could see the explosion from the cemetery. I stood next to Little Red Velvet with tears in my eyes. My boat was on fire in the fjord and sinking in a black cloud of smoke down into the deep blue water. 
Red tried to console me by reaching out his paws and trying to hold my hand. I'm a proud man, though. I couldn't accept it. I'm going down with that ship, I said. I'm going down to the fjord to end it all. I don't want to live here anymore. I let those words hang in the air for a while. Red just stood next to me and we stared from our place amongst the tombstones at the black cloud of smoke above the water. Then the door to the tunnel from which we'd recently emerged opened and out walked a young woman dressed in a police uniform accompanied by Dr. Rosa, the raccoon. Red chattered something in raccoon language and ran over to greet his mother. She patted him on the head and listened to whatever he was saying. He was saying it urgently. Dr. Rosa in turn looked troubled, and while comforting her son, turned her eyes to the young woman dressed in a police uniform. The young woman looked at me. I am the baker's daughter, she said. This raccoon here is Dr. Rosa. The one you rescued is her son. His name is Red. First of all, I didn't mean to rescue him. I caught him. I'm a monster. I was going to trade him in for money. The rescue was improvised after I got double-crossed. How's a baker's daughter dressed up like police? You come here to collect? I asked her all this in quite a state, wiping tears from my eyes. I made it myself. I'm a seamstress, she said. Nice work. I'm impressed, I said. Red says you plan to end it all. We have a better plan. You're a fugitive now, just like us. We can help you, she said. Oh, yeah? Why would you want to help a kidnapper, I asked. You were just doing what you had to do to survive, she replied. You didn't know there was any other way. And when the real rules of the game revealed themselves, your instinct guided you to do right. And it will continue to do so. We can't go on living here. You know that to be true. There is a land that is free and unruled across the fjord. We need someone who knows how to drive a boat and can catch some fish to eat. We will need food for the journey. Well, I'm afraid I don't have a boat anymore, I said. Then, the seamstress opened her handmade suitcase and pulled out an exceedingly large stack of money. Yes, you do, she said. I shook my head and began to laugh. The seamstress, who until then seemed deathly focused to the point of humorlessness, also began to laugh. The raccoons, too, began to laugh. Our laughter filled up the cemetery and echoed over the icy streets down toward the fjord. The sky had grown cloudy and light snow began to fall. A cold wind blew. Lights twinkled on empty streets. Sirens sounded from across town. Our laughter subsided. Then, without another word, we slipped out of the graveyard. That evening, with boxes of baked goods, suitcases full of warm clothing, crates full of sewing machines and fishing equipment, blankets and lanterns, we walked as stealthily as possible down to an unknown dock and boarded a brand new fishing boat. The boat was larger than any I'd ever driven and well provisioned with extra fuel. 
What's more, the deck was filled with passengers of all description. Some were human beings, some were beings with coats of fur and fancy sets of teeth. I started the engine, steered us west into the darkness across the fjord. <laughs> 